Hello and welcome to Speak the Words, a Cosmere podcast. I'm Sean. And I'm Mango. And we're finally starting season three, baby. That's right. It's time for Words of Radiance, the second book in the Stormlight Archive. I'm going to really quickly remind us of where we left off last book for the major characters. Uh, starting off with Zeth. Zeth had found out that he had been, the people he's been killing, he's been killing under the orders of King Taravangian, the mm-hmm. very nice old king from Cabranth. Nice. Yeah, king. the very old nice king who is actually running a hospital where people are bled to death so that uh, they can hear the last words they say before they die. That guy. And he was given his final name, the final person he has to kill, and that is our good buddy Dalinar Kalin. No, not Dalinar. Uh, jumping to Shalon, Shalon uh, and Yasna both realize that the other all has radiance power, radiant powers, um, and that they, they pretty much uh, Yasna is like, all right, I see you're doing radiant stuff. I'm also doing radiant stuff. We are going to go together to the Shattered Plains where my uncle is because I think there is um, hints at where the ancient radiant city of Urethiru is there. And so we're going to go look for Urethiru. And also, by the way, all these parchment slaves we have, yeah, they're the Voidbringers. Yeah. Uh, and then for Kaladin and Dalinar, Dalinar got betrayed by Sadius at the end there. Uh, we had the big Battle of the Tower. Kaladin swore the second ideal of the Knights Radiant. Which was fucking badass. It was badass as hell. Uh, Dalinar exchanged his shard blade for all of the slaves, all, all the bridgemen in uh, in Sadius's camp. Not all the slaves overall, but all the bridgemen. He, he did what he could. He did what he could. He got all. He the probably bridgemen. could have done a little bit more, but he didn't want to cause problems. Probably. So, <laughs> yeah. He's still, like, you know, at the top of the social ladder. So I'm sure there's always more he could be doing, but, you know. Yeah. Uh, it is what it is. Yeah, um, but for the sake of the book, we only need the Bridgemen. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're the only ones with plot relevance. Uh, uh-huh. Forget the other ones. And Kaladin is told that he will uh, be the new guards for House Colin because pretty much all of the old Cobalt Guard got absolutely murdered. Yep. In uh, the t- at the tower, uh, Kaladin was made a captain, the first dark-eyed man to ever be raised to that rank. And um, the one thing he says to Dalinar is that he's not going to fight Parshendi because while at the tower, he realized that he has more respect for them than he has for his own fellow soldiers. Wait, who said that? Uh, Kaladin. He oh, had I more thought. Respect okay. For the, I thought that was Dalinar. The- no, Dalinar. Well, Dalinar said he's not going to fight in the plateau uh, things anymore, but that's just because he's got to take more of a like bureaucratic um, stance. He's going to be more of a leader and less of a soldier. Mm-hmm. And Kaladin said that he had more respect for the Parshendi uh, and the way they fought at the tower than the Alethi, so he refuses to fight them. Given that they're in a war against the Parshendi, but you know, okay. And then uh, Tom returned. Uh, Tom, our good friend, Helena. Oh, yeah, Helena that guy. Lott, uh, the herald that was left behind in the prelude. He returned, and Wit was like, you're too fucking late, dude. But I guess, you know, we'll see what happens there. Words of Radiance, book two of the Stormlight Archive. Mango, I am going to post in this general chat here in the server. I'm going to post the cover of this book. Oh. And it's a pretty cool cover, I think. Ooh. 
hmm, I wonder who that other person could be. I wonder uh, what we're building towards here. I wonder what this person in white could be. Yeah. And who the person who... with the spear who is glowing could be. Yeah. No, no idea. There's no telling who it could possibly be. Uh, quick fun facts about this book released March 4th, 2014, which was about three and a half years after book one. Uh, it would have come sooner, but I believe Sanderson finished Wheel of Time between books one and two, uh, between Wave Kings and this book. He finished Wheel of Time, I think. That's fine. Um, this book is, uh, the hardcover is 1,088 pages, which is about 80 pages longer than book one. Uh. It's 398,000 words, uh, which is about... 14,000 words longer than book one. There are 105 chapters compared to 87 in book one. And there are 21 different POV characters compared to 18 in book one. So everything just gets a little bit bigger with this book. Uh, The real big jump is going to be next book. The next book is much larger than um, Wave Kings in this one. Uh, The back cover of this, which I told you last time, the back cover is canonical. It is being written in universe. Mm -hmm. The back cover of this book reads, The Knights Radiant must stand again. The ancient oaths have at last been spoken. The spren return. Men seek that which was lost. I fear the struggle will destroy them. It is the nature of the magic. A broken soul has cracks into which something else can be fit. Surge bindings, the powers of creation themselves... They can brace a broken soul, but they can also widen its fissures. The Windrunner, lost in a shattered land, balanced upon the boundary between vengeance and honor. The Lightweaver, slowly being consumed by her past, searching for the lie that she must become. The Bondsmith, born in blood and death, striving to rebuild what was destroyed. The Explorer, straddling the fates of two people, uh, forced to choose between slow death and a terrible betrayal of all she believes. It is past time for them to awaken, for the Everstorm looms, and the assassin has arrived. So really quickly, we got the Windrunner. You have any guesses as to who that could be? So, the Windrunner, lost in a shattered land, balanced upon the boundary between vengeance and honor. You have any guesses as to who Windrunner could be? I mean, we've got two of them, so... <laughs> yeah, I guess kind of. The Lightweaver, slowly being consumed by her past, searching for the lie that she must become. You have any idea who the Lightweaver is? Redhead? Yeah, Shalon. The Bondsmith, born in blood and death, striving to rebuild what was destroyed. That one might not be as obvious. If you can't think of anybody, we'll just move on. Say that one again. The Bondsmith, born in blood and death, striving to rebuild what was destroyed. Bondsmith? I don't know. You won't be able to guess who the Explorer is. You haven't met them yet. The Explorer is straddling the fates of two people. You have met them, but they haven't become a character yet. Um, forced to choose between slow death and a terrible betrayal of all she believes. And then obviously the assassin has arrived. We got our boy Zeth in here. Well, then the Windrunner has to be the other one because Kaladin? what? Yeah. Cause why would they mention yeah. the same person under two different names? So yes. it's Kaladin. All the images I'm sharing right now are going to be in the discord, by the way, for anybody that's wondering, um, we have the front end paper, which I just posted, which is some. Great art of Shalon at the Shattered Plains. Mm. And then... Wait, her hand isn't completely covered. That's... I think her other one inappropriate. is. Inappropriate. Right? No, the other one is not completely covered. Ooh, you can see her fingers. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Shalon. Maybe she's out on her own. And then we I don't have... know. There's a bug there. So she's That's not by true. herself. 
Oh, you have no idea. Okay. Uh, we're going to move so swiftly along because you're kind of right in a way that I can't explain for so long. Anyways, uh, and then we have the map of Roshar, as always, which we don't need to spend a whole time looking at because we already have. But mm-hmm. we're all at the Shattered Plains, which is like the kind of top right corner of the map. We're, that's where pretty much everybody is. Mm-hmm. And then we start the book with prologue to question uh, six years ago. And this has what we recognize as Shallan's symbol. Um, but I will tell you right now, in this book, this will change to be Yasna's symbol. And Shallan will get a new one. Poor K. Yes, but but uh, her Shallan's new symbol is so much better. Uh, Poor in my K. Opinion. But this is this is going to be used as Yasna's now because um, this is the Yasna prologue. So we're so we start the prologue. This is the night that uh, Gavilar died. Uh, Yasna is leaving the feast, celebrating the signing of the Alethi Treaty with the Parshendi. She's on her way to a clandestine meeting that she has scheduled, and she runs into her father, speaking with our favorite person. Amaram. Uh, she goes up to them and she's like, man, this party sucks. Everyone is drunk. It's stupid. Nobody wants to have an intelligent conversation with me. And her father smiled and goes, is it terribly difficult for you living with the rest of us, suffering our average wits and simple thoughts? Is it lonely to be so singular in your brilliance, Yasna? And Yasna <laughs> is like, oh, okay. All right. You're rebuking me. Sorry. Um, and Gavilar is like, hey, maybe if you had a hot boyfriend, you'd like to party more. Oh, hey, look, Amaram is right here. Yeah. Amaram gets really scared and he's like, oh, you know, actually, I'll see you later. I mean, I mean, sir. And he runs off. <laughs> um, and Yasna is like, what creepy shit are you up to? You've been acting re- weird lately. What's your play here? And Gavilar just kind of smiles at her and walks away. She notices her shadow is pointing the wrong way. Her shadow slowly returns to normal, but she's disconcerted. This is not the first time this has happened to her, and she wonders if she is cursed. Now that's just probably her special powers that she doesn't know how to use. All right, she snapped. That's enough. She hadn't mentioned to speak aloud. However, as the words slipped out, several distant shadows, originating in an intersection up ahead, stirred to life. Her breath caught. Those shadows lengthened, deepened. Figures formed from them, growing, standing, rising. Stormfather, I'm going insane. One took the shape of a man of midnight blackness, though he had a certain reflective cast, as if he was made of oil. No, of some other liquid with a coating of oil floating on the outside, giving him a dark, prismatic quality. He strode toward her and unsheathed a sword. By now, the entire hallway had darkened, as if it had been submerged and was slowly sinking into lightless depths. Heart racing, breath quickening, Yasna raised a hand to the granite wall beside her, seeking to touch something solid. Her fingers sank, sank into the stone a fraction, as if the wall had become mud. Oh, storms. She had to do something. What? What could she possibly do? The figure before her glanced at the wall. The wall lamp nearest Yasna went dark, and then... Then the palace disintegrated. The entire building shattered into thousands upon thousands of small glass spheres, like beads. Yasna screamed as she fell backward through a dark sky. She was no longer in the palace. She was somewhere else. Another land, another time, another something. She was left with the sight of the dark, lustrous figure hovering in the air above her, seeming satisfied as he resheathed his sword. Yasna crashed into something, an ocean of glass beads. She starts to flail wicked, uh, wildly as she drowns in the ocean of glass beads. Each beach that touched her gave a faint impression of something. A door, a table, a shoe. 
She snatched a bead in her hand. It gave her an impression of a cup. She gave something to it. The other beads near her pulled together, connecting, sticking like rocks sealed by mortar. In a moment, she was falling not among individual beads, but through large masses of them, stuck together into the shape of a cup. Each bead was a pattern, a guide for the others. Desperate, she swept her arms wide to touch as many beads as she could. A silver platter, a coat, a statue, a lantern, and then something ancient. Something ponderous and slow of thought, yet somehow strong. The palace itself. Frantic, Yasna seized this sphere and forced her power into it. Her mind blurring, she gave this bead everything she had and then commanded it to rise. Beads shifted. A great crashing sounded as beads met one another, clicking, cracking, rattling. It was almost like the sound of a wave breaking on rocks. Yasna surged up from the depths, something solid moving beneath her, obeying her command. Beads battered her head, shoulders, arms, until finally she exploded from the, dark, the, or exploded from the surface of the sea of glass, hurling a spray of beads into a dark sky. She knelt on a platform of glass made up of small beads locked together. She held her hand to the side, uplifted, clutching the sphere that was the guide. Others rolled around her, forming into the shape of a hallway with lanterns on the walls, an intersection ahead. It didn't look right, of course, the entire thing was made of beads, but it was a fair approximation. She wasn't strong enough to form the entire palace. She created only this hallway without even a roof, but the floor supported her, kept her from sinking. She opened her mouth with a groan, beads falling out to clack against the floor. Ahead of her, the dark figure stepped up onto the platform. He again slid his sword from his sheath. Yasna held up a second bead, the statue she'd sensed earlier. She gave it power, and other beads collected before her, taking the shape of one of the statues that lined the front of the feast hall. The statue of Talenelet Ilin, Herald of War, a tall, muscular man with a large shard blade. It was not alive, but she made it move, lowering its sword of beads. She doubted it could fight. Round beads could not form a sharp sword, yet the threat made the dark figure hesitate. Gritting her teeth, Yasna heaved herself to her feet, beads streaming from her clothing. She would not kneel before this thing, whatever it was. She stepped up beside the bead statue, noting for the first time the strange clouds overhead. They seemed to form a narrow ribbon of, of highway, straight and long, pointing toward the horizon. She met the oil figure's gaze. It regarded her for a moment, then raised two fingers to its forehead and bowed, as if in respect, a cloak flourishing out behind. Others had gathered behind it, but they, and they turned to each other, exchanging her, uh, hushed whispers. Yasna is transferred back to the physical realm. She notices that the lanterns near her have been drained of stormlight. She hurries on to the meeting, where she tells the assassin Lys that she only wants her brother's wife, Asudan, watch for now. Yasna reminds Lys of their first agreement, according to which Yasna will, watch, uh, will match payment of any offer made against a member of her family, in exchange for the name of whoever tried to have them assassinated. Liss also mentions that she'd had a Shin servant she'd wanted to show Yasna, but she'd sold him to another slaver a few weeks ago because he was too creepy. I wonder who that is. It's Zeth. Uh, <laughs> As she leaves, Yasna hears the Parshendi's drums cease. Words echoed in the hallway coming from up ahead. I'm worried about Ash. You're worried about everything. Yasna hesitated in the hallway. She's getting worse, the voice continued. We weren't supposed to get worse. Am I getting worse? I think I feel worse. Shut up. I don't like this. What we've done was wrong. That creature carries my lord's own blade. We shouldn't have left him keep it. He... The two passed through the intersection ahead of Yasna. They were ambassadors from the west, including the Azish man with the white birthmark on his cheek. Or was it a scar? The shorter of the two men, he could have been a lethi, cut off when he noticed Yasna. He let out a squeak, then hurried on his way. 
Uh, so in the first prologue of the first, or in the prologue in the first book, Zeth notes that these two people are talking to Elakar at one point. The Azish man, the one dressed in black and silver, stopped and looked her up and down. He frowned. Is the feast over already? Yasna asked down, asked down the hallway. Her brother had invited these two to the celebration along with every other ranking foreign dignitary in Kolinar. Yes, the man said. His stare made her uncomfortable. She walked forward anyway. I should check further into these two, she thought. She'd investigated their backgrounds, of course, and found nothing of note. Had they been talking about a shard blade? Come on, the shorter man said, returning and taking the taller man by the arm. He allowed himself to be pulled away. Yasna walked to where the corridors crossed, then watched them go. Uh, so uh, this is something that we would only ever talk about in rereads and we're not going to do that. So I'll bring it up now. Uh, these two are heralds. Oh, um, Ash is here. One of them says, I'm worried about Ash. She's getting worse. We weren't supposed to get worse. Am I getting worse? I think I feel worse. Um, Ash is, uh, Shalash. Uh, she is the woman that we talked about in the last book who's going around uh, destroying paintings of herself. Hmm. And Zeth notes that her statue is missing on this night in the first prologue. So she is also here and has destroyed her own statue uh, here. Mm-hmm. So we've got these two and Ash here tonight so far. Mm-hmm. Continuing on, Yasna hears screams and starts running, following a trail of destruction that leads to her father's rooms. She watches as Zeth collapses the balcony beneath himself and Gavilar. She begins to cry as he stands over her father and wonders what he is doing. When he walks away, she sees that her father is dead, his blade having appeared next to him and despairs over failing in her efforts to protect her family. The Parshendi elders approach her and take responsibility for Gavilar's death. They say that it had to be done, that Gavilar was about to do something very dangerous. And... When the Parshendi speak, I am not going to do how I'm not going to speak how they speak, but they speak in rhythm as if they're all listening to the same songs. Um, So if one is saying, like, I'm glad that you're here, they might go like, I am glad that you are here. Like, that's how they talk. They're always talking as if there's a beat that they're speaking to. There is. That's why they sing when they fight. There's a song. There's a song that only they can hear. Mm-hmm. And we might learn more about that because the interlude character in this book in these this book is a Parshandi. Um but the one of the uh elders goes up to Yasna and go, and uh, Yasna says, There will be war and I will not stand in its way. This is understood, Gangna said from behind. The assassin, Yasna said, he walked on the wall. Gangna said nothing. In the shattering of her world, Yasna caught hold of this fragment. She had seen something tonight, something that should not have been possible. Did it relate to the strange spren? Her experience in that place of glass beads and a dark sky? The Parshendi leader said nothing more and gave no clues, even when they were strung up, hanged for their crimes. Yasna ignored all that. Instead, she interrogated the surviving guards on what they had seen. She followed leads about the now-famous assassin's nature, prying information from Lys. She got almost nothing. Lys had owned him only a short time and claimed that she hadn't known about about his strange powers. Yasna couldn't find the previous owner. Next came the books, a dedicated, frenzied effort to distract her from what she had lost. That night, Yasna had seen the impossible. She would learn what it meant. And that's the end of the prologue. And that is what sent Yasna off on this, this path that we see her on. Um, I would 
hazard a guess that Yasna of the fledgling radiance is probably the furthest along because she has been doing this since six years ago. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting given the fact that she's atheist. She doesn't believe in the God, but I, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it. Mm-hmm. We'll get a little, we'll get more Yasna in this book. Part one, a light. Shalon, Kaladin, and Dalinar are the three viewpoints for this chapter, or for this part. Chapter one is called Santhid, and it has Shalon's symbol, which as of right now is still the one that is going to become Yasna's symbol. It will change later on. Mm-hmm. The epigraph reads, To be perfectly frank, what has happened these last two months is upon my head. The death, destruction, loss, and pain are my burden. I should have seen it coming, and I should have stopped it. From the personal journal of Navani Colin, Jessices 1174. Oh, I was thinking, like, oh, that's wit. Wit, you could have done something, but you didn't. But no, no. That's just me being salty towards him. <laughs> towards wit. We'll get a wit la- <laughs> letter later on, though. Every book has one. The chapter opens with Shalon sketching Shades Mar aboard Tozbeck's ship, which, uh, the wind's pleasure, and that's the guy who had originally dropped her off on Cabranth, and now Yasna and her are taking his ship to the Shattered Plains. Uh, While sketching, she notices a pattern appear on her sketch. She sees this pattern, an embossed sequence of complex lines with sharp angles and repeated arrowhead shapes. It moved. This startles Shallan, causing her to drop her sketches, which Yalp collects for her, who was the, like, he was like the the footman that was uh, helping her out at the beginning of the last book. Shortly thereafter, a scout spots something in the water, which turns out to be a santhid, a large rare sea creature viewed by sailors as good luck and whose shell is the only thing anyone ever sees. Seeing an opportunity, Shalon decides she needs to sketch the first ever picture of a living santhid. Yasna sits with her on the deck and gives her some details about Shadesmar and Spren. It is not truly a location, Yasna said, not as we usually think of them. Shadesmar is here all around us right now. All things exist there in some form as all things exist here. Shalon frowned. I don't... Yasna held up a finger to quiet her. All things have three components, the soul, the body, and the mind. That place you saw, Shadesmar, is what we call the cognitive realm, the place of the mind. All around us, you see the physical world. You can touch it, see it, hear it. This is how your physical body experiences the world. Well, Shadesmar is the way that your cognitive self, your unconscious self, experiences the world. Through your hidden senses touching that realm, you make intuitive leaps in logic and you form hopes. It is likely through those extra senses that you, Shalon, create art. That made almost no sense whatsoever to me, Brightness. I should hope that it didn't, Yasna said. I've spent six years researching Shadesmar and I still barely know what to make of it. I shall have to accompany you there several times before you can understand even a little the true significance of the place. Listen to me, Yasna said. My own words betray my ignorance. I told you that Shadesmar wasn't a place, and yet I call it one in my next breath. I speak of visiting it, yet though it is all around us. We simply don't have the proper terminology to discuss it. Let me try another tactic. Look down into the waters. What do you see? I see eternity, Shalon said. Spoken like an artist, Yasna said. This ship sails across depths we cannot know. Beneath these waves is a bustling, frantic, unseen world. There was an entire world, Shallan, of which our minds skim but the surface. A world of deep, profound thought. A world created by deep, profound thoughts. When you see Shadesmar, you enter those depths. It is an alien place to us in some ways, but at the same time, we formed it. With some help. We did what? What is Spren? Yasna asked. Nobody knows what Spren are, though many philosophers have different opinions on... No, what are they? I... They're living ideas. 
The woman narrowed her eyes. By my best guess, Spren are elements of the cognitive realm that have leaked into the physical realm. They're concepts that have gained a fragment of sentience, perhaps because of human intervention. Think of a man who gets angry often. Think of how his friends and family might start referring to that anger as a beast, as a thing that possesses him, as something external to him. Humans personify. We speak of the wind as if it has a will of its own. Spren of those ideas, the ideas of collective human experience, somehow come alive. Shadesmar is where that first happens, and it is their place. Though we created it, they shaped it. They live there. They rule there, within their own cities. Cities? Yes, Yasna said, looking back out over the ocean. She seemed troubled. Spren are wild in their variety. Some are as clever as humans and create cities. Others are like fish and simply, simply swim in the currents. Does this have to do with what you discovered? About the Parshmen and the Voidbringers? I haven't been able to determine that yet. The Spren are not always forthcoming. In some cases, they do not know. In others, they do not trust me because of our ancient betrayal. Shalon frowned, looking to her teacher. Betrayal? They tell me of it, Yasna said, but they won't say what it was. We broke an oath and in, doing, in so doing offended them greatly. I think some of them may have died, though how a concept can die I do not know. Yasna turned to Shalon with a solemn expression. I, really, I realize this is overwhelming. You will have to learn this, all of it, if you are to help me. Are you still willing? Do I have a choice? A smile tugged at the edges of Yasna's lips. I doubt it. You soul cast on your own without the aid of a fabriel. You were like me. Shalon sees the pattern again on the waves. Brightness, she said, resting her fingers on Yasna's arm. I thought I saw something in the water just now. A pattern of sharp lines like a maze. Show me where. It was on one of the waves and we've passed it now. But I think I saw it earlier on one of my pages. Does it mean something? Most certainly. I must admit, Shalon, I find the coincidence of our meeting to be startling. Suspiciously so. Brightness? They were involved. They brought you to me. And they are still watching you, it appears. So no, Shalon, you no longer have a choice. The old ways are returning, and I don't see it as a hopeful sign. It's an act of self-preservation. The Spren sense impending danger, and so they return to us. Our attention now must turn to the shattered plains and the relics of Urethiru. It will be a long, long time before you return to your homeland. Shalon nodded mutely. This worries you. Yes, my- yes, Brightness. My family- Yaza tells Shalon that she has spoken to Navani about the possibility of repairing the soul caster Shalon possesses so that her brothers can give it back to the ghost bloods. She goes on to say that they need to deal with her house's debts as well, and tells Shalon that she's arranged for a betrothal between her and Adolin. Shalon takes it very well, thinking that link being linked to, Sh uh, to the Kolins would make everybody too afraid to mess with her family in Yakaved. Yasna asks if Shalon is upset that somebody else is setting her up, and the girl says that she's just happy it's not her father picking the man. She also says that she has a bad taste. She has bad taste as the first man she picked herself was both an ardent and secretly an assassin. Yasna clearly has a thing about marriage and doesn't like the idea of being beholden to a man. Shalon doesn't see it the same way, saying that Yasna seems to describe it as like slavery. Shalon is kind of delighted at the idea of being set up with the famous Adolin Kalin. Uh, she'd heard of the duelist and shard bearer as a child. Although they're pretty close to the same age, so uh, uh, as a young teen, maybe, is more uh, correct. She says she isn't an important enough match for him, but Yasna says that he's pissed off every other single girl of his rank, so he doesn't really have much of a choice. Shalon asks why Yasna is linking her to Adolin and not the younger brother, Renarin, saying that she doesn't have anything to offer that Colin house when Adolin becomes High Prince. On the contrary, Yasna said, if you are what I think you are, then you will be able to offer him something nobody else can, something more important than riches. What is it you think that I am, Shalon whispered, meeting the older woman's eyes, finally asking the question that she hadn't dared. Right now, you are but a promise, a chrysalis with the potential for grandeur inside. 
When once humans and Spren bonded, the results were women who danced in the skies and men who could destroy the stones with a touch. The Lost Radiance. Traitors to mankind. She couldn't absorb it all. The betrothal, Shadesmar, and the Spren, and this. Her mysterious destiny. She'd known it, but speaking it. Shallan says she'll be chewed to pieces by the Alethi court, and Yasna tells her that she has to learn how to use her station uh, in the world as a weapon. She says that making other people perceive her as an important woman who gets what she wants is even more important as a skill than learning about surge binding. She tells Shallan to tell her if she sees the pattern again, then gives the girl the rest of the day off as she goes to figure out how to explain Shadesmart to her. After much debate with Yalb and Tazbek, the sailors finally agree to allow Shallan to be lowered over the side of the boat to get a look at the Santhid. That's the end of chapter one. Chapter two is titled Bridge Four. And it has Kaladin's symbol on it, which just for a quick reminder, in case you don't remember what that looks like, uh, I did not save it. So it's a bunch of spears sticking up in the ground. Sorry, I forgot. Um, our fir- the epigraph for this reads, Our first clue was the Parshendi. Even weeks before they abandoned their pursuit of the Gemhearts, their pattern of fighting changed. They lingered on the plateaus after battles as if waiting for something. From the personal journal of Navani Kolin, Jessica 1174. Kaladin rides out the first high storm since being freed in a small room attached to his men's new barracks within Dalinar's war camp. Upon exiting the room, he is greeted with cheers by his men who have been shaving their beards during the storm with Rock's razor. Kaladin contemplates the betrayals of both Sadius and Amaram while speaking with Scar, Teft, and Moash about how to proceed training the newly freed bridgemen. There are some 1,000 men situated in 20 now-empty buildings in Dalinar's camps, buildings recently emptied after the betrayal of Sadius and the subsequent loss of soldiers. Kaladin decides they will find the most eager bridgemen and train them personally, sending them back to pass on their training to larger groups of bridgemen, all of whom have been given permission to leave as free men, although the majority of them have not done so. Kaladin says his worst-case scenario plan is to have all 1,000 men trained and able to leave the war camp as a cohesive cohesive band of mercenaries if it comes to that. Having been named captain by Dalinar, the highest-ranked Dalinar dared appoint to Dark Eyes, Kaladin plans to name Sigzel, Rock, Teft, Moash, and Scar lieutenants. Rock will be quartermaster, with Lopin as a second. Teft will be in charge of training, Sigzel will be the clerk, and Moash, Scar, and Kaladin will be mainly in charge of guarding Dalinar, who they have mutually agreed, after some discussion, is their best hope for remaining free men. Later, the men previously at Bridge 4 visit a tattooist. The tattooist sets about covering the slave brands with tattoos of freedom, including some details of who freed them and when. First, Hobber decides he wants a Bridge 4 glyph added, and after this decision, the rest demand the same. Not to indicate freedom from Bridge 4, but to embrace the unity they found there. Even those members of Bridge 4 who were without slave brands opt to get the tattoo, including Shen, though the tattooist refuses at first before Teft and Hobber push him into it. Most on and Shen is the Parshman, uh, yeah. If, yeah. Most on their foreheads, uh, though te- Moash chooses to get it on his arm. Finally, Kaladin sits for his tattoo, but the ink will not take. His stormlight expelling it. He banished the stormlight and tried it again. This time, the tattoo took. Kaladin sat through the process, teeth clenched against the pain, then looked up as she held the mirror for him. The face that looked up back at Kaladin seemed alien. Clean-shaven, hair pulled back from his face for the tattooing, the slave brands covered up and for the moment forgotten. Can I be this man again, he thought, reaching up, touching his cheek. This man died, didn't he? Sill landed on his shoulder, joining him and looking into the mirror. <clears throat> Life before death, Kaladin, she whispered. 
He unconsciously sucked in stormlight, just a little, a fraction of a sphere's worth. It flowed through his veins like a wave of pressure, like winds trapped in a small enclosure. The tattoo on his forehead melted. His body shoved out the ink, which started to drip down his face. The tattooist cursed again and grabbed her rag. Kaladin was left with the image of those glyphs melting away. Freedom dissolved, and underneath, the violent scars of his captivity, dominated by a branded glyph. Shosh. Dangerous. After leaving, Kaladin and his men walked through the war camp, noting the general mood. Kaladin describes the camp ha- describes, decides the camp has an air of dread to it following Sadius's betrayal. The men did receive bridge four salutes from a few people they passed, Kaladin wondering where they had even learned the salute. It's nice to be seen as a hero, isn't it? Sigzel asked, walking beside Kaladin and watching another group of soldiers pass. How long will the goodwill last, do you think? Moash asked. How long before they resent us? Ah! Rock, towering behind him, clapped Moash on the shoulder. No complaining today. You do this thing too much. Do not make me kick you. I do not like kicking. It hurts my toes. Kick me, Moash snorted. You won't even carry a spear, Rock. Spears are not for kicking complainers, but big unkalaki feet like mine, it is what they were made for. Ha! But this thing is obvious, yes? The men visit the headquartermaster, Rind, to discuss uniforms for the bridgemen. Moash thinks he'll look silly in the Colin uniform, but the rest of Bridge 4 seems eager to get out of their slave wraps. Moash changes first. Now there's a soldier, the quartermaster said with a laugh. Still think you look silly? He gestured for Moash to inspect his reflection in the mirror on the wall. Moash fixed his cuffs and actually blushed. Kaladin had rarely seen the man so out of sorts. No, Moash said. I don't. Teft had on his uh, had his on before anyone else and knew how to do up the buttons in the right places. Been a long time, he whispered, buckling his belt. Don't know that I deserve to wear something like this again. This is what you are, Teft, Kaladin said. Don't let the slave ru- rule you. Teft grunted, affixing his combat knife in its place on his belt. And you, son, when are you going to admit what you are? I have. Not to us. To, uh, to us. Not to everyone else. Don't start this again. I'll storming start whenever I want. Tev snapped. He leaned in, speaking softly. At least until you give me a real answer. You're a surge binder. You're not a radiant yet, but you're going to be one when this is all blown through. The others are right to push you. Why don't you go have a hike up to that Dalinar fellow, suck in some stormlight, and make him recognize you as a light eyes? Everything I've ever had, Teft. The light eyes have taken from me. My family, my brother, my friends. More. More than you can imagine. They see what I have and they take it. He held up his hand and could faintly make out a few glowing wisps trailing from his skin, since he knew what to look for. They'll take it. If they can find out what I do, they'll take it. Now how in Collect's breath would they do that? I don't know. I don't know, Tef, but I can't help feeling panic when I think about it. I can't let them have this. Can't let them take it, or you men, from me. We remain quiet about what I can do. No more talk of it. Tef grumbled as the other men finally got themselves sorted out. Though Lopin, one-armed with his empty sleeve, turned inside out and pushed in so it didn't hang down, prodded at the patch on his shoulder. What's this? It's the insignia of the Cobalt Guard, Kaladin said. Dalinar Colin's personal bodyguard. They're dead, Goncho, Lopin said. We aren't them. Yeah, Scar agreed. To Rin's horror, he got out his knife and cut the patch free. We're a Bridge Four. Bridge Four was your prison, Kaladin protested. Doesn't matter, Scar said. We're Bridge Four. The others agreed, cutting off the patches, tossing them to the ground. Teft nodded and did likewise. We'll protect the Blackthorn, but we're not just going to replace what we had before. We're our own crew. Kaladin rubbed his forehead, but this was what he had accomplished in bringing them together, galvanizing them into a cohesive unit. I'll draw up a glyph 
repair insignia for, the, for you to use, he told Rind. You'll have to commission new patches. The portly man sighed as he gathered up the discarded patches. I suppose. I've got your uniform over there, Captain. A dark-eyed Captain. Who would have thought it possible? You'll be the only one in the army. The only one ever, so far as I know. He didn't seem to find it offensive. Kaladin walked over to the last bundle on the counter. His uniform was different. He'd seen such uniforms frequently. On light eyes. Bridge four, he said, cutting the cobalt guard insignia from the shoulder and tossing it to the counter with the others. And that's the end of that chapter. All right. Um, there is a image here. It is a sketch from Shallan's notebook, and it's just the sketch of what she saw under the water. It's some pretty gorgeous art, though. Wow. Chapter three is titled Pattern. The... Uh, the epigraph reads, Soldiers reported being watched from afar by an unnerving number of Parshendi scouts. Then we noticed a new pattern of their penetrating close to the camps in the night and then quickly retreating. I can only surmise that our enemies were even then preparing their stratagem to end this war. Jessica's 1174. I just want to comment in the art, it looks like a turtle jellyfish. It kind of does, doesn't it? Which, like, makes sense because kind of everything in this world has these hard shells for the most part. Yeah. Shallan sits in her cabin on the wind's pleasure, reading a book written by Yasna about Voronism and the Recreants and its effect on the documentation of history, such as the existence of Shadesmar. Research into times before the Heriocracy is frustratingly difficult, the book read. During the reign of, he of the Heriocracy, the Voron Church had near absolute control over Eastern Roshar. The fabrications they promoted and then perpetuated as absolute truth became ingrained in the consciousness of society. More disturbingly, modified copies of ancient texts were made aligning history to match heriocratic dogma. The church of this era was suspicious of the Knights Radiant, yet it relied upon the authority granted Voronism by the Heralds. This created a dichotomy in which the recreance and the betrayal of the Knights was overemphasized. At the same time, the ancient Knights, the one who had lived alongside the Heralds in the Shadow Days, were celebrated. This makes it particularly difficult to study the Radiance in the place named Shadesmar. What is fact? What records did the church in its misguided attempt to cleanse the, the past of perceived contradictions rewrite to suit its preferred narrative? Few documents from the period survived that did not pass through Voren hands to be copied from the original parchment into modern uh, codices. While studying, the pattern shows up again, this time on the cabin wall, vanishing when she looks directly at it. Shallan notes that the similarity between the pattern and the symbol-headed creatures she had seen previously— she immediately attempts to sketch the pattern, drawing more creation, many creations spren, though she found it difficult to capture the precise pattern. When finished, the pattern seems to leave the paper and move to the floor. Yasna comes to Shallan's room, just as Shallan leaves to find her. A small figure made of inky blackness, shaped like a man in a smart, fashionable suit with a long coat, stood in Yasna's palm. He melted away into shadow as he saw Shallan. Yasna looked to Shallan, then glanced toward the floor of the cavern where the pattern was crossing the wood. Yasna says that they aren't the same order of radiant, but, uh, oh, Yasna says that they wished they had been the same order of radiant, but they aren't. She says, each order reportedly had access to two of the surges with overlap between them. We call the powers surge binding. Soul casting was one and it is what we share, though our orders are different. I'm not one of the radiants, Shallan said. Of course not, and neither am I. The orders of knights were a construct, just as all, as all society is a construct, used by men to define and explain. Not every man who wields a, sword, a spear is a soldier, and not every woman who makes bread is a baker. And yet weapons or baking become the hallmarks of certain pr professions. So you're saying that what we can do was once the definition of what initiated one into the knight's radiant. 
Shalon is surprised that they can be radiance because they're women, and Yasla is like, are you fucking stupid? Of course they were women radiance. She says that Shalon wouldn't have ha- uh, Shalon wouldn't have to be a radiant who fought if she didn't want to. Oh, was Shalon disappointed by that? Fool. A memory rose unbidden. A silvery sword, a pattern of light. Truths she could not face. She banished them, squeezing her eyes shut. Ten heartbeats. Yasla says that the spren that Shalon saw in the last book... Uh, called cryptics, and that the pattern that has been following Shalon around is a cryptic that is manifested in the physical realm. Shalon finds this form unimpressive. Yasna says that the cryptics have a scary reputation, but this one seems just kind of stupid. Perhaps it simply needs more time, Yasna said. When I first bonded with Ivory, she stopped abruptly. What? Shalon said. I'm sorry, he does not like me to speak of him. It makes him anxious. The night's breaking of their oaths was very painful to the Spren. Many Spren died, I'm certain of it, though Ivory won't speak of it. I gather that what he's done is regarded as a betrayal by the others of his kind. But no more of that, Yasna said. I'm sorry. Yasna says that the cryptics rule one of the greater cities in Shadesmar and are kind of like the light eyes of the cognitive realm. She also says there's a complex conflict between them and the Honor Spren, which if you'll remember, the Honor Spren is what um, Syl is. Mm-hmm. But she hasn't studied Spren politics a ton. She says that this Spren will be Shallan's companion and give her access to soul casting and whatever the other surge she can use is. They go on to talk about the nature of Spren. Shallan says that lots of scholars say that Spren are fragments of the powers of creation. Yasner asks her what that means, and Shallan says, There are ten fundamental surges, forces, by which the world works. Gravitation, pressure, transformation, that sort of thing. You told me Spren are fragments of the cognitive realm that have somehow gained sentience because of human attention. Well, it stands to reason that they were something before. So before the Spren were alive, they were something. Power, energy. Zen daughter Vath sketched tiny Spren she found sometimes around heavy objects. Gravitation Spren, fragments of the power or force that causes us to fall. It stands to reason that every Spren was a power before it was a Spren. Really, you can divide Spren into two general groups, those that respond to emotions and those that respond to forces like fire or wind pressure. Yasna says she agrees with this categorization, and then she goes on to say, I suspect personally that these groupings of Spren, emotion Spren versus nature Spren, are where the ideas of mankind's primeval gods come from. Honor, who became Voronism's almighty, was created by men who wanted a representation of ideal human emotions as they saw in emotion Spren. Cultivation, the god worshipped in the West, is a female deity that is an embodiment of nature and nature spren. The various void spren with their unseen lord, whose name changes depending on which culture we're speaking of, evoke an enemy or antagonist. The Stormfather, of course, is a strange offshoot of this, his theoretical nature changing depending on which era of Voronism is doing the talking. Yasna apologizes for going off on a tangent and they get into a bit of a debate about religion. You're so sure he isn't real, Shalon said. The Almighty. I have no more proof of him than I do of the Thalen Pashas, New Relique of the Pure Lake, or any other religion. And the Heralds? You don't think they existed? I don't know. There are many things in this world that I don't understand. For example, there is some slight proof that both the Stormfather and the Almighty are real creatures, simply powerful spren such as the Night Watcher. Then he would be real. I never claimed he was not real. I, cl- I merely claimed that I do not accept him as God, nor do I feel any inclination to worship him. But this is again a tangent. Yasna leaves and tells Shalon that her only job for the next day is to study the cryptic that is following her around. Shalon is less than enthused. And that's the end of that chapter. Huh, that's kind of an interesting way for her to put it. I think it's very interesting that um, Sanderson writes Yasna the way that he does uh, based on his own, like, 
I'm very impressed with how uh, Sanderson is able to separate his own personal faith from what he's doing in these books. Now, we're going to do one more chapter. Uh, This episode is just going to be a little bit longer than we're normally going to do this season, but uh, it's because the next chapter is a Dalinar chapter, and I just want to make sure that we're reintroduced to each of the main characters in this episode. So chapter four is the Taker of Secrets. It has what was previously the House Colin symbol, which I also forgot to grab again. Um, This is now Dalinar's symbol. Adolin will get his own when he gets his own viewpoints later in the book. This epigraph reads, The next clue came on the walls. I did not ignore this sign, but neither did I grasp its full implications. From the Journal of Navani Colin, Jessices 1174. We're in Dalinar's POV, he is experiencing another vision. He describes how he is running through what he believes to be the Pure Lake, along with about a dozen armed and armored men, though he notes that they are clad in ancient leather armor. At first, he is unsure if they are running away from something or toward something, until he notices a fortress apparently made completely out of onyx. His group meets up with another one led by a knight radiant in deep red glowing plate. Dalinar thus determines that this vision takes place before the recreants. The radiant informs them that... Cabe thought he saw something and tells them to look around. When one of the men hears Dalinar mumbling to himself as he describes what is happening, he tells Dalinar to look for a spren that isn't behaving the way it should, because spren that are touched by Ja and Nat are different. Dalinar repeats the words quietly, hoping that Navani will record them, when he notices that the female knight is talking to apparently nobody. As he looks around, he sees a face of shadow with red eyes in the water. When he points this out to the others, the knight, after noting that this is Jean-Nat's spy, sends Cabe to the checkpoint and tells the others to keep watching for the carrier. Dalinar chases after the spren while describing it, when it is suddenly joined by a six-foot-tall spren. As the second one dives into the rock, Dalinar stumbles back. He gets pulled back further by one of the men as the ground starts to tremble. Dalinar watches as the Spren, having somehow apparently animated the rock, starts to climb out of the rock with its new rock body. The soldiers, recognizing it as a thunderclast, start yelling for hammers. The Radiant bursts to life with a light that reminded Dalinar of Stormlight and charged the creature. They were created to watch, a voice said from beside him. Dalinar looked to the soldier who had helped him rise earlier, a long-faced Sile man with a balding scalp and a wide nose. Dalinar reached down to help the man to his feet. This wasn't how the man had spoken before, but Dalinar recognized the voice. It was the same one that came at the end of most of the visions. The Almighty. The Knight's Radiant, the Almighty said, standing up beside Dalinar, watching the Knight attack the Nightmare Beast. They were a solution, a way to offset the destruction of the Desolations. Ten orders of knights founded for the purpose of helping men fight, then rebuild. Dalinar repeated it word for word, focused on catching every one and not on thinking about what they meant. The Almighty turned to him. I was surprised when these orders arrived. I did not teach my heralds this. It was the Spren wishing to imitate what I had given men who made it possible. You will need to refound them. This is your task. Unite them. Create a fortress that can weather the storm. Vex Odium. Convince him that you, he can lose and appoint a champion. He will take that chance instead of risking defeat again as he has suffered so often. This is the best advice I can give you. The soldiers fighting behind him started to glow with stormlight, but more faintly. You were surprised by the coming of the knights, Dalinar said to the Almighty, and this force, this enemy, managed to kill you. You were never God. God knows everything. God cannot be killed. So who were you? The Almighty didn't respond. He couldn't. I will do what I can, Dalinar said. I will refound them. I will prepare. You have told me many things, but there is one I have figured out on my own. If you could be killed, then the other like you, your enemy, probably can be as well. 
Dalinar returned to reality, taking a seat as Navani finished uh, transcribing his words. He tells Navani that he has to refound the Knight's Radiant, which she finds ridiculous. He's frustrated by the lack of information that he has. He recounts his vision to her, wondering if the shard blades were created to fight the stone creatures he'd seen. They talk about a proclamation that he'd already shown to the High Princes and would be made public in a few days so that Elokar couldn't back out. Navani notes his new confidence and implies he should be confident enough to have her move in, and he refuses since the Ardents wouldn't marry them. She goes to depart back to Elokar's palace, and Dalinar sends Kaladin with her to keep an eye on her. He falls asleep for a while, and when he awoke, there were, t there were glyphs scratched onto the wall of his room. Sixty-two days, the glyphs read. Death follows. A short time later, Dalinar was standing as Navani and one of the Kolin scholars, Rushu, inspected the glyphs. Adolin was inspecting a piece of rock that had been used to make them. Navani tells Rushu not to speak of this to anybody before dismissing her, and Adolin wonders if this is a threat. Kaladin pushed his way into the room as the scholar left. The writing had happened while he was taking Navani to the palace, and he considered it his failure. Kaladin hurried over and hopefully didn't see... Eh. Kaladin hurried over and hopefully didn't see how Adolin's jaw tightened as he regarded the man. Dalinar had been fighting the Parshendi Shardbearer when Kaladin and Adolin had clashed on the battlefield, but he'd heard talk of their run-in. His son certainly did not like hearing that this dark-eyed bridgeman had been put in charge of the Cobalt Guard. Kaladin apologized to Dalinar and told him that he was going to have more guards in his quarters in the future. Dalinar inspected the young soldier, scarred and dark of expression. Why, Dalinar thought, do I trust this man so much? He couldn't put his finger on it, but over the years he'd learned to trust his instincts as a soldier and a general. Something within him urged him to trust Kaladin, and he accepted those instincts. Dalinar told him that it was fine and that they'd just be more careful in the future before dismissing him. You said you awoke to this here, Navani said? You said you didn't see anyone enter or hear anyone make the drawing? Dalinar nodded. Then why do I get the sudden and distinct impression that you know why it is here? I don't know for certain who made it, but I know what it means. What then? It means we have very little time left. Send out the proclamation, then go to the High Princes and arrange a meeting. They'll want to speak with me. The Everstorm comes. Sixty-two days. Not enough time. It was apparently all he had. And that is where we'll leave off. Oh, I was, I was thinking sixty-two days before Zeth would come to kill him, but... Oh! Who says that they won't happen at the same time? Dramatic, uh... Tension. Because that's too convenient. Yeah, but also Dalinar doesn't know that Zeth is coming for him, so his, I like. It I know. Could, I'm it, saying that's what yeah. he thinks. Okay, but I'm okay. saying I yeah. think. Okay, okay. It's actually Zeth Ooh, giving him a well. warning. <laughs> Are you saying Zeth snuck into the room, drew that in there, and then left? <laughs> He's giving him a countdown timer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I I I love it. <laughs> That's a really great visual. <laughs> I mean, he seems like he wouldn't want to keep randomly killing people for no reason. Yeah, he seems pretty against all of this. Exactly. So he's probably yeah. giving him a countdown timer like, hey, I kind of <laughs> have to do this. So uh, figure out all your stuff before I kill you. Well, the assassin is coming. Um. Yeah, we had a ton of information about uh, about Shadesmar and Spren in this. I know that most of it probably went over your head, but that's okay. Um, a lot of it is just foreshadowing. I need to read it and not be told yeah. it in order to really internalize it. Mm -hmm. Or I have to at least be told it multiple times. And you will be. Um, and not have gonna, a headache. Yeah. 
Um, will it will be repeated? Shadesmar is a very big part of this series. Um, like the cognitive realm overall is a very big part of the Cosmere. So this stuff is going to be repeated over and over again. But this is like our first instance of um talking about it. Uh, I'm curious. I don't know if you have much of an opinion, but how you feel about the idea of Shallan being engaged, uh, getting betrothed to Adolin? I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I feel like I feel like she's definitely not his type, but that mm-hmm. might be for the best because <laughs> his type so far has just been people who are pretty who will just sit there and be eye candy. Yeah. And he needs someone who's not just eye candy. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of betrothal. Yeah. Here I am. I'm making my characters be betrothed in my own story. But they yeah. were best friends before that, so it's okay. Okay, um, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, I don't know. I guess we'll see. We will see. Um, and then uh, I will give you a little tease for next week. Uh, someone's gonna die. Dope. Uh, that's all I have for you this week, though, Mango. Um, why don't you go ahead and tell people what, you know, if they want to get in contact with you online, if however you, you would like to be reached or not reached. If you want to get in contact with me, good luck. <laughs> good luck. All right. Uh, if you guys want to get in contact with me online, I am at Sean underscore AFK on Twitter. This podcast is on Twitter at at Speak Stormlight. You guys can email us at speakthewordsasp at gmail.com. Um, our cover art for this season, I can't believe I forgot to mention this at the beginning. Our cover art for this season was made by our good friend Alks. It's incredible. Um, yep. The cover art mango, that is like, that's what the uh, Bridge Four's new uniforms look like, you know? Yep. Um, that's what they're all wearing. Um, thanks, Alex. You're thank best. you, Alex. Uh, I don't really have a way for you to get in contact with him. He's not super, like, on the internet a ton. Um, but if there ever is a way to, way to get in contact with him, uh, I will be putting it in descriptions and stuff, such. Um, and you guys can also join our Discord server. The link to do that is in the, uh, I think it's our pinned tweet. And also, in the episode description as always guys thanks for listening and remember life before death strength before weakness journey before destination